Good morning to you. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. And this will be a narrative that's very familiar to most of you, if not all of you, that have been in church for a while. And so I don't come here today to offer any fresh insight or new, new thing, but we don't gather here just to hear some new thing. We gather to hear God's word, and it's timeless. And uh, there's a scripture from Corinthians that I, I've been just really meditating on this week. And the Apostle Paul, he, he, uh, he wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, Wherefore, let him that think he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And in between standing and falling are these two words, take heed. Now we read in another place that the things that are written in the Old Testament, they're written for our admonition, they're written for our encouragement, that we might uh, learn from their example. And this is one such example. This is not the highlight of King David's life. We spent a uh, few weeks, almost a month I guess, maybe longer than that, talking about David's rise to power. And if you remember the last sermon I preached about David, it was him showing kindness to Mephibosheth. And that was pretty much as good as it gets for David. From that point on, it, it goes uh, sideways and every which way in between. And, and today, we look at one of the, uh, the lowlights of David's life. And he's probably about 50 years old, at least at this point in his life. He's no longer a shepherd boy. Uh, he's no longer just the, uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But he is the man that killed a lion, grabbed him by his beard, and killed him, and killed a bear, killed many of the Philistines. He's probably known for two things in particular. He's known for the giant that he killed. And then today we'll talk about the giant that he couldn't kill. And that's the title of my message today. The giant that David couldn't kill. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. And Lord, even though this is a story, a tragic story in many respects, it's also a story about redemption and mercy and forgiveness and grace. There may be one here today who is on the verge of falling. And I pray that David's example would pull him off the edge or pull him away from the ledge. There may be some who have already given in to temptation. There may be some who have already fallen in the grip of Satan's power and sin right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister grace and forgiveness to them. God, you are the God of infinite mercy. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So, Lord, let us leave here today with a deeper appreciation for your grace and a respect for the power of temptation and sin that resides within each one of us. I ask for your blessing as I read the word and exposit it today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we begin in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So, uh, first thing we see is that there was apparently in that time period a season when kings went to battle. Now, we have seasons of our own. We have four seasons uh, here. And sometimes in North Carolina, we experience all four in one day, don't we? Freezing in the morning, and by the time it's over with, you got on shorts and flip-flops. But uh, we think about uh, hockey season. We think about football season, baseball season. And then there's NASCAR season, which basically goes the whole year except for December. Um, but they, there was a season when kings went to battle in the Old Testament, and uh, most of the commentators believe that this happened uh, when, when the, uh, after the latter rains, uh, in the springtime, where the winter was over, it would have been more uh, accommodating for the troops to, to do their thing. The chariots wouldn't get stuck in the mud. And so uh, the commentators make a big deal about the fact that David was not with the army. And we're not told why he's not with the army. But the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, gives us a strong indication that it, it's, it's, it's really not so subtle that David was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and, uh, and bad things happened. I'll never forget, the first time I ever heard a sermon on this particular uh, t text of Scripture, I was sitting right over there about where Joanna is right now, and uh, I was sitting over there with Tony Perkins and John Austin and Brad Pfeiffer, and, and we, were, you know, we were trying to act like we were paying attention, and we were for the most part. And, uh, but Leon Smith, he was, he was preaching the sermon, and he said his, his title was a good man at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that stuck with me as a little kid, and, and I can appreciate it even more. But, but David, uh, whatever the reasons were, he, he was in much more jeopardy at home than he would have been on the battlefield. Now, as you read the, the Bible, you understand that the, uh, the Ammonites were really no match for the Israelites. I mean... As far as a tactical strategy, I don't know that David needed to be there. I mean, they, they pretty much had everything under control. But, but the scripture says that, that David tarried at Jerusalem, and, and he's there, and uh, this idle time would prove to be deadly for him. I can remember when I was a little kid, we, me and my cousins, we used to spend the night over at Mama Haney's house all the time. And, and she rarely, if ever, would allow us just... I mean, just pure moments of leisure when we were over there. She always had a puzzle she wanted us to work on. She's the one that taught me how to uh, do my times tables. I don't know if they even do that anymore, multiplication tables. She taught me how to, uh, to write in cursive if I could do that before I was even uh, in the second or the third grade. And, and, and I remember complaining to her one time, and I said, Mama, why you always got us doing something? Why don't you just let us just lay around and... And uh, she would say this often, and maybe your mother or your grandmother said this to you, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I think Mama knew what she was talking about. And, uh, and David, he, he apparently had forgotten this, but David tarried at Jerusalem, and it came to pass at eventide that David arose from off of his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, 
And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Well, one thing that might strike us as odd is, uh, is David's walking on the roof. And, uh, and that's because we don't build roofs here in, uh, residential roofs here in, uh, in North Carolina the way they do in Israel. In Israel, it's very mountainous and hill, hillsides and houses are built that way. And so there's not a lot of real estate. And so they would build up. And, and so the rooftop of the house would be a flat uh, surface. And it would be a place where they would entertain guests and uh, they would walk. And, and so it's not that uncommon. And so you find people in the Bible on the rooftop. And that's why David is here. And many times they would get up at the break of day. And then they would take a nap in the afternoon. And then they would get up and uh, conduct their affairs in the evening. So uh, David's here. He's walking. And he sees a woman washing herself. And the Bible says the woman was very... Notice that word very, <laughs> very beautiful to look upon. Now, the Bible doesn't always describe the, the appearance of individuals. But when the Bible tells you that this woman was not just beautiful, she was very beautiful, you can rest assured that she was a 10 or a 12 out of 10. She was gorgeous. She was beautiful. And uh, she was bathing. David saw her washing herself. Now, the Bible lays most of the blame of everything at the feet of David here. The, the, the scripture does not really take Bathsheba to task for what she's doing, but I, I'm not going to give her a pass here. How many of you have neighbors that can see you close enough to where they can see you in your yard? Anybody? This would be a good time to let the blood flow. Raise that hand if you <laughs> help you to stay awake. Okay. Now, I don't know about you. I've got neighbors. I share a driveway with a few other people. But I know where the line of sight is. Okay? And I know if there's certain places I go, my neighbor can see me. David and Bathsheba are neighbors. And David lives in the king's palace. The king's palace, the only thing higher than the king's palace is the temple. On the temple mount. And so, it's not unreasonable to believe that Bathsheba knew that she was in the line of sight of David, of the king's house. They're neighbors. Sometimes we forget this, that Bathsheba is not only a beautiful woman, but she's David's neighbor. They live close to each other. And she's bathing. And so I'm not going to give her a free pass here. And, uh, and we find later on that Bathsheba was ra rather uh, opportunistic. Uh, later on we'll read about her and kings and and uh, ladies, help the guys out if you can. Uh, the Bible says that women are to be adorned in modest apparel. And that, uh, you know, the, the adorning of the woman, her beauty is not to be the outward, but it's to be the inward uh, beauty. And so uh, perhaps this didn't help the situation any, the fact that she's out there bathing for for King David to see. And maybe, just maybe, I don't want to read into it or go beyond Scripture, but maybe, just maybe, she's hoping he will see her. We don't know. But, uh, but she's bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay. 
Now, I quoted a scripture earlier from 1 Corinthians. Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now, the next scripture in Corinthians says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that you were able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. First thing we need to realize is that this could happen to you or to me. And I know this story is about adultery, but you could expand it to any area of, of, of uh, sin. It's not limited to just this. We could apply it to any, any area. And if you think for one minute that it couldn't happen to you, well, the devil's got you right where he wants you. If you think for one minute that it wouldn't happen to you, that you'll be the exception to the rule, then Satan has you right where he wants you. And I believe here that this is the biblical concept of God providing a way of escape. Because I listened to the words of the messenger. Number one, Bathsheba is somebody's daughter. And number two, she's somebody's wife. Sin never happens in a vacuum. Sin always affects other people. Okay, Always. You might think, well, I'm doing this. I'm not hurting anybody but me. No, you're hurting somebody else too. You see, because you are somebody's son or daughter. You're probably somebody's husband, somebody's wife, somebody's child, somebody's pastor, somebody's Sunday school teacher, somebody's deacon. Sin never happens in a vacuum. We, we affect one another. And here, David is reminded, this is somebody's daughter and this is not just anybody's wife. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his trusted warriors. He was one of his right-hand men. That should have been enough for David to say right there, put the brakes on it. Okay, this goes no farther. But James says that sin is a process. He said, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust has conceived, it's the imagery of a baby, then it brings forth sin. That's step two. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth what? Death. But it started when you begin to meditate on that thing. And so this is, where, this is the point where David should have run. There are times when we are to engage in battle. This is the time when kings are supposed to be in battle. You know, you and I don't ever have the luxury of being off the battlefield. We are engaged in a battle. We are in a warfare. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And because of that, we are admonished and encouraged to take on the whole armor of God Every piece of it. And that's every day. We don't have the luxury of laying our armor aside. David has got his armor. If I could use that New Testament analogy. David has laid aside his armor. And it will prove deadly. Because the enemy knows right where to strike. He knows where you're exposed. This doesn't stop David, however. Verse 4. David sent messengers. Took her and she came unto him and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. Okay. First of all, I want to, I want to address a common misconception. There are some people that say that David raped Bathsheba. I don't believe that for a minute. The Bible never says that he forced himself. There are other times when women were raped in the Bible, and the Scripture is clear that the man raped the woman. The Scripture does not say anything about this at all. 
and she could have protested. If you remember one of his other wives, Abigail, remember he was going to kill Nabal, and Abigail pleaded with him, and he didn't do it. Bathsheba could have said, David, we can't do this. We're neighbors. Now, I know he's the king, and you say, well, nobody says no to the king. But David has proven himself to be a reasonable person at other times. Okay? And there's no reason why Bathsheba couldn't have just said, we can't do this, David. This is not right. This is, you're the king. And we're neighbors. To be crass, some of you have heard that old expression, you're not supposed to poop where you eat, right? We're neighbors. We don't do that. And besides all that, my husband is one of your generals. We can't do this. And I really hate this, you know. When you read about the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, you see there's love there. You see there's romance. There's no element of romance here whatsoever. There's no element of love here whatsoever. David sees and he lusts and he takes it. And she apparently is complicit with this. And there's nothing that indicates this was anything more than just a one-night stand. That's all it was. In her mind and in his mind. It's a one-night stand. Now the scripture tells us she was purified from her uncleanness. And I believe that this stresses to us here that this baby is, is going to be David's baby. We're going to find that out here in the next verse. Verse 5. Oh my. The woman conceived. That was certainly an unintended consequence, I'm sure. Sin always has a price. Wages of sin is death. And the devil has always, he's arranged this thing in such a way that you don't pay it all up front. Okay? We see it even in our society, don't we? Everything's about instant gratification. What is the mantra of almost every sales pitch? Buy now, pay later. Sin is that way. The pleasures of sin are great for a season. The devil never shows you the end result. She conceives and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Oh, boy. Now David's got a dilemma. Now, if this had happened in the year 2021... Our culture would have said, oh, that's no big deal. We'll just go to the abortion clinic. But see, children in those days were not seen as an inconvenience. Or as a, there was no question in their mind. That, notice that never entered into their thought process to, for that baby to be aborted. I wonder how many abortions. I don't, I don't know any statistics. Some of you might know. I wonder how many abortions are the result of some adulterous affair somebody's trying to cover up. I just wonder. Not that any abortion is a good abortion. But I just wonder how many of those are someone's attempt, desperate attempt to cover up. You know you can't hide from God. You might be able to cover it from man. Now David's wheels are turning. His head is spinning. And he's beginning to make decisions that are not real logical. And that's what sin will do to you. See, sin will make you panic. Sin will make you afraid. That's what happened with Adam. Adam was afraid, and what did they do? They make, they, they, you know, they're making these fig leaves to try to cover up. They're, they're trying to hide from God. David sent to Joab and said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
Now, what time is it? It's the time when kings go out to battle. This is the middle of a war here. And David said, uh, could you send Uriah home for a little bit? Now, do you think Joab might have raised an eyebrow at that when he got that letter in, in the mail? <laughs> you think maybe Joab thought, what in the world is David doing? I think he probably knew what David was doing. See, by this point, David's already got a harem. I might talk about that here in a little bit. I don't know. At this point, David's already got a reputation as a ladies' man. He's, he's got a harem already. And, and, and it would be not beyond the realm of possibility that Joab was familiar with that good-looking wife of his soldier, Uriah. You know how word travels in a small town. And she's very beautiful to look upon. And I'm sure when, when Joab got that letter, he thought, oh, boy, David, what have you done stepped into now? This is, but see, sin will make you do things that are not logical. He, David's scrambling here. This is an ill-conceived plan. And so he calls Uriah home. Now, when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him of how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. This is all a ruse here. David couldn't care less about how the battle's going. I mean, otherwise he'd be there with him, right? <laughs> he don't care. This is just small talk. This is just a ruse. He's got a plan. And he thinks this plan is going to be a foolproof plan, but it's going, to, it's going to prove not to be a foolproof plan. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. This would have been a king's portion. This would have been great. Wouldn't that be great to come off the battlefield, and then the king invites you over for a... A meal of whatever your favorite meal is. Prime rib, filet mignon. I'm gonna, i am i got to stop. You'll be thinking about food. You're already thinking about lunch now. Where are we going to go when he shuts up? Where are we gonna go? Just a little bit longer, Jesus. Go wash your feet. Now, from other places we learned that often when soldiers were employed in the battles of the Lord, they would abstain from from relations with their wives. Remember when David came to the priest and he ate the shoe bread and the priest asked him if they had kept themselves from women and they said, yeah, we have. We've been on the battlefield. And so when David tells him to go wash his feet, it may be that he's absolving him from the vow uh, to, of celibacy while he's on the battlefield. What is David hoping is going to happen? Well, he hopes that Uriah is going to go home and he and, this, and Bathsheba are going to be together and then the baby's going to be born and there'll be no question as to who the father is. Everyone will assume that Uriah is the father of the child. Sounds like a decent plan. Only thing is, Uriah is a man of integrity. And it says in verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants and went not down to his house. Uh-oh. Plan A didn't work. Didn't, didn't work. So we're going to have to come up with something else. That's the way it is with sin, you know. One, one lie leads to another lie. One scheme leads to another scheme. And you've got to cover this up to cover that up. And then by the time it's all over with, you can't remember who you've told what. Oh, come on. I'm preaching real world stuff here. It's awful quiet in here. It's okay. Verse 10, they told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house. David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why did thou not go down into thine house? Hey, you deserve it. 
You've been in on the battlefield. You were one of my choice men. I can hear him now. You're my right-hand man. Just enjoy yourself. Allow yourself a little relaxation. Have some fun. <laughs> Uriah said unto David, I believe this is a rebuke here, a subtle rebuke. Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the service of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live? Now he takes an oath. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now I want you to notice something here. Uriah says, we're all doing what you should be doing. It's really interesting to me that the first thing he mentions is not Joab and not Israel and Judah. What's the first thing he mentions in verse 11? The ark. Now, this is not Noah's ark. This is the ark of the covenant. And what does the ark of the covenant represent? Anybody? The presence of God. The power of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Uriah is cognizant of the presence of God. And for David, God is not real at the moment. You see, David doesn't even acknowledge God. But Uriah is thinking about the presence of God. And that's where you and I get. We get in that place where we entertain temptation and we meditate on it. And we let it conceive and we're scheming and plotting. And all the while, God is not real to us. Now, he's there. Because he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. He's, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The one we must give an account. But for us, when we're in the middle of that thing, we're oblivious to God, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're oblivious. David said to Uriah, tarry here today also. And on the morrow I will let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. Usually, David ends up being a type of Christ. In most of our stories, David is a type of Christ. He's a king in exile, just like Jesus was a king. He's anointed to be king, even though Saul is you know, exercising squatter's rights. Satan is the, the god of this world currently, but Jesus is the real king. I mean, the types and shadows are immense. They're enormous. I couldn't just go over all of them. Usually, David is a type of Jesus Christ. But in this story, it's not David who's a type of Christ. It's Uriah. And idiomatically here, we have three days. Three days is often tied to our, to our Messiah. We have three days with Uriah. Uriah is a righteous man suffering at the hands of the leader of Israel, leadership of Israel. Christ suffered at the hands of the leadership of Israel. Uriah was aware of the presence of God. He was concerned about it. Now, when David had called him to eat, verse 13, and drink before him, he made him drunk. And, it, and it even he went out to lie on his bed with the service of his Lord, but went not down to his house. David understood something that many of us have failed to realize, and that is alcohol lowers our inhibitions and our moral resolve to do the right thing. I mean, you can look throughout the scriptures. How many times was you know, something terrible happened as a result of alcohol being there? And I'm not preaching on alcohol per se today, but I'm just telling you that David understood something. 
And that's why he made him drunk. He, he understood that Uriah is a man of moral resolve, but if I can get him drunk, I can talk him into, I can, I can make him open to the power of suggestion here. But here's the irony. Uriah has more integrity drunk than David does sober. It's not the things that are inner from without that defile the man, but the things that are within. Well, that'll preach, won't it? All right. Now, I'm not saying go home and get drunk. I'm a good man. You know, Uriah was a good man. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. All right. Verse 14. Okay, plan B has failed, right? Plan A failed. Plan B failed. Now we're at plan C. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. And and here's the kicker. Send it by the hand of Uriah. The man is carrying his own death. He's carrying his own cross. You get that picture? He's carrying his own cross. I just got that insight just a minute ago. Just thank you, Lord Jesus. He's carrying his own cross. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire you from him that he may be smitten and die. Now, what in the world is Joab thinking when he gets this letter? Well, you know, by now he's already put two and two together. Uh, Joab gets invited to go home to the, to the king to be with, have dinner with the king. And now... He's being told to execute uh, Uriah. Joab's a shrewd guy. I mean, he's, he's no dummy. He's a mighty warrior, and he's a smart guy. Really shrewd. And so he comes up with a strategy, and even in this, he's looking out for David. Now, remember, Joab has got his neck on the line out here. You know, when you're in the football game, you don't want to bench your best player. Let alone kill him. How many of y'all are happy that Cam Newton's back in town? Not me. It's like getting back together with the old girlfriend. What's going to be different this time? I don't know. Nothing. All right. That, that was carnal. Throw that out there. Football analogy's over with. You're on the battlefield. You don't want to kill your best soldier. No way. He's an asset to you. And at this point, you might think that Joab. You know, there were other times when Joab didn't do what David told him to do. I'll get to that in a few weeks, maybe, if God will let me preach on it. There were other times when David gave Joab a command and he didn't obey. Maybe, just maybe, Joab could have said, you know what, this is a terrible thing. David's trying to cover up for his sin. You just wonder all along the way, and I believe the same thing is true with you and with me. All along the way, God is pulling up red flags and saying, don't do this. Hey, This is not a good idea. And we just plow right on through anyway. Oblivious. So what does Joab do? Well, the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed verse 16. It came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. He knew the tough guys, the big Mighty warriors were. The place near the tower. The place where you don't go when you're fighting a war. You don't go next to the tower, the wall of the enemy. Because that's where they're fortified. That's where their arrows can reach you. That's where you are susceptible to attack. 
They fought against him, and Uriah died. Now, verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, enough so be that the king's wrath arise. Why would the king's wrath arise? Well, they're losing the battle here. They've lost valiant men. And, and you want to see this here, too, that David's sin didn't just cost Uriah his life. It cost other men their lives, too. He wasn't the only one that died. There was collateral damage. I'm going to tell you this. The sins of our lives will cause collateral damage. It won't just affect you. It'll affect you and your children and maybe your children's children. David was a man of God. David was a man after God's own heart. But what is he remembered for? He's remembered for killing the giant. And he's also remembered for the giant that he could not kill. How will you be remembered? How will I be remembered? All right. And if he asks you, and, and if, he, if his wrath arise, say unto you, Wherefore approached you so near unto the city when you did fight? Knew you not that they would shoot from the wall? I mean, David is a, a, David is a smart, smart military commander. He knows that this is not a good strategy to use. Now, verse 21, he, he reminds us of a story from the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, I think it's the ninth chapter, don't turn there, but we're told that Gideon had a son named Abimelech. And he was not a good guy at all. He was a ruthless, ambitious, uh, self-serving kind of guy. But he was killed in a most remarkable way. A woman dropped a block or a brick or a rock or whatever from a tower and it busted, it broke his skull. You can read about that in Judges chapter 9. And Abimelech, in, in, uh, in the throes of death, he asked his mate to kill him because he said, I don't want anybody to know that a woman killed me. I don't want to go down in history as a man that was killed by a woman. You ever read about that? And what do we remember about Abimelech? He's the man that was killed by a woman. See, the thing that he feared came upon him. The fear of the wicked will come upon them, you see. So many times, the things that we are so desperately trying to preserve in our lives are the things that are going to destroy us. We're trying to keep this house of cards from falling, you know. If you've never been there, then I commend you for that. I've been there. When the house of cards, and you're doing everything you can to hold it together. Because you don't want to be exposed... See, this whole thing is about exposure. David don't want to be exposed. And remember that adultery is not just a naughty thing. It's a capital crime. And both he and Bathsheba could be put to death for it. Now, he's the king, so the likelihood of him being stoned to death is not real high. But that's not true of Bathsheba. And after all, her husband's off the battlefield. you know. So... It's interesting that Joab reminds David about a story where a woman killed a man. You see any irony here? This woman has brought, has ruined Abimelech's reputation. Do you see the irony here? I believe Joab is intentional in reminding him of this story. Did a woman not cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Tebez? Why went you near the wall? Then said to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
In other words, if David has anything to say about how the battle went down, you just tell him the dirty deed has been done. You're welcome. You can hear the sarcasm dripping from Joab's pen. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent for him. The messenger sent for David. Surely the men prevailed against us. You know, he's, this guy's probably a nervous wreck. You don't want to give the king a bad report. He's probably a nervous wreck. Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field. And we were upon them even to the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants. And some of the king's servants be dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. I believe that's the only thing David was listening for. And I think that's the only thing he heard that day. He didn't hear anything about all those innocent men that died. He didn't hear anything about the, the setback. I mean, this is the army of the Lord. David's not used to losing battles, is he? I mean, David's used to, he's used to winning his fights. Read all about it. From the time he's a little boy till the time, till here. You don't read about David losing any battles. He's a winner. And now the guy comes back and says, David, you lost today. We lost. And we didn't just lose a game. We lost people. Precious people. <laughs> but David was not concerned about that. The only thing that brought him any satisfaction, I believe that he, that report that was brought back to him, I don't believe that David, it grieved his heart at all. I believe he breathed a sigh of relief. Because he heard that one thing that he wanted to hear. And what was that? Your eyes dead. And when he heard that, it made everything else uh, secondary. <laughs> you can look at the callous, cold-hearted response. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shall you say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease you. Oh, don't worry about it, Joab. For the sword devours one as well as another. What a flippant response. Let me put it in a modern vernacular. You win some, you lose some. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. It's bound to happen. There's always going to be some collateral damage in any battle. Make your battle more strong against the city. Overthrow it and encourage thou him. Wow. The hypocrisy. And when the wife of Uriah, notice she's not called by name, and I think it's pretty, pretty uh, uh, fitting here that she's not treated in a personal way because in this whole story she's been objectified by David to her. She wasn't a person that he was in love with, a person that he was uh, attracted to her moral quality and virtue. She was just simply an object to him. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she mourned for her husband. But the mourning didn't last long. When the mourning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife. This tells me again here that David didn't rape her, and she had some kind of feelings of hatred toward him. She became his wife and bare him a son. 
I'm sure in David's mind, he thought, took a little bit of effort, but I finally covered this thing up. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know what a foolproof plan I've come up with. But what does the last verse of the chapter say? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. How sad this is. We're not used to hearing this about David, are we? We're not used to hearing this about him. We're used to hearing that he's the man after God's own heart. He's the man that loved the Lord. He's the man that danced before the Lord with all of his might when the ark was being brought back to Jerusalem. He's the man that loved God. He's the man that does the right thing. He was nice to Saul. Saul was a jerk. Saul wanted to kill him. And David treated him with compassion. David was compassionate even with Nabal, this foolish man, insolent man. He was kind. David is, this is not David. This is not the David we've come to know and love. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, one of the reasons, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I know that the Bible is the inspired word of God is it doesn't try to cover up the flaws of its heroes. They're human. They're very human. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in Deuteronomy... God says this about kings in Deuteronomy 17. He says, Thou sh when, you come, when you are coming to the land which the Lord your God gives you and shall possess it, you shall dwell, dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are round about me. Interesting, God predicted that they would ask for a king. You shall in any wise set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. One from among your brethren shall you set as king over you that you may not set a stranger over you which is not your brother. But there were three things the king was not supposed to do. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So there were three things. Number one, he was not supposed to multiply horses. Now we read in other places where David chopped off the legs of the horses. You know, he... He didn't multiply horses. He didn't multiply to himself silver and gold. But there was one area of his life that he did not obey the word of God. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel 5. In 2 Samuel 5 verse 12, it says, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over all Israel. He was promoted. He wasn't just a king over Hebron anymore. Now he's over all of Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. And then 2 Samuel 5, 13. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. So David, in this area of his life, he had already begun to show chinks in the armor. He was disobeying the commands of God. And he was multiplying wives. And so what we see here, the man already had a bunch of wives. The devil will always tell you, well, if you just, just one more won't hurt you. Just one more and it'll satisfy that. And what will happen with his son? You know, Solomon, he took what David did to the 10th power, you know, and I'm exaggerating here. 
it wasn't enough for him either. Notice all those, all those proverbs about the adulterous woman. You know, him and his daddy knew a little something about that, didn't they? They knew about the danger and the, the, the devastation that it would bring. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. I want to ask you, what is it in your life that God has spoken to you about but you refuse to deal with? The writer of Hebrews says, let us lay aside the sin, the weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. He included himself there. There may be some area of your life, and it may be not some big thing, you know. Some of you would read this scripture and say, oh, I would never do what David did. I would never commit adultery. I'd never sleep with another man's wife. But Jesus raised the bar a little higher. And he said, I say unto you, if you look on her with adultery in your heart, you've committed adultery already. It's no accident that one of the biggest uh, industries in the world is the pornography industry of pornography and we think well that's not that's not hurting anybody it's just me and my computer me and my phone or whatever and you forget that that woman or that man in that pornographic movie that's somebody's daughter that's somebody's wife more than likely somebody that we've just objectified is and God doesn't just look at the outward appearance he's looking on the heart you see And David had a giant that he couldn't conquer. It's like the alcoholic. One drink is too many and two is never enough. Nobody that ends up addicted to really serious drugs started out that way. Most people don't start out addicted to heroin. I mean, it starts out with something small. We're going to smoke whatever. Pot. And then we're going to graduate. Then we're going to Take pills, and before you know it, you talk to any junkie, anybody that's addicted, that has a, it, it, it started out small. It started out maybe with a, a social drink, right? It started, it started out with something really innocent, and you think, well, I've got control of this, and then before you know it, it's got control of you. Lust is that same way. Lust is not satisfied. It just craves, you've heard this, phrase the law of diminishing returns it's like the more you get the more you need then I need more to get that same feeling that I had before because that little bit is not going to do it for me I want to ask you this morning is there some area in your life that you have refused to deal with and I'm going to give the invitation here And I don't want you to look around. I don't want you to say, I wonder why they're in the altar praying. Because I'm going to be the first one in the altar praying. And I don't want you you to speculate as to who's who's wrestling with what. Because I guarantee you, everybody in this room's got something. Come on now. I'm preaching to a bunch of human beings in here. Everybody in here has got something. Some area, some pressure point that the devil knows and he, he applies the same uh, leverage every time because he knows what gets results. He knows what your weaknesses are. He knows you better than you do. And he's going to use that. There may be somebody here. You are on the verge right now. You're right where David was on the rooftop. And God is trying to put up all these barriers to keep you 
from doing this thing. It's going to ruin your life. You say, well, David was forgiven. He was forgiven, yes. That is the grace of God. And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. David was forgiven. David was restored to fellowship with God. But his life was never the same. It was one tragedy after another. One family tragedy after another, you see. I want you to ask yourself, are you at that place? Have you sat down and counted the cost? Because the devil never shows you the end. He always just shows you right up front. Buy now, pay later. Or maybe you've already blown it. I don't know. God knows where we are. I'm not preaching this in response to anything anybody's told me or anything I know about you. I had planned to preach on this anyway. To pick up back, back in the life of David. Maybe you're already there. Maybe you're in that place where David was for nine months or a year. And your conscience is eating you alive. And God is saying, I love you, my child. If you'll confess and repent, I will forgive you. Do you know there's no sin other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And you wouldn't be here even if you'd done that. You wouldn't care a thing about God. There's not one sin that God won't forgive. Amen. I'm standing here telling you I'm living proof. I've done some things that I am just flat out ashamed of, Brother Mark. Some things I won't play it up on the screen here for all the world to see. And I tell you that not so you'll sit here and speculate about what I've done or haven't done, but to tell you that I'm living proof that I know God will forgive. And He will restore you. He will restore you. And, and just like David, He will restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Some of you have lost the joy of your salvation. Sin will do that to you. It'll just eat you alive. Where you don't find any joy in others. And, and you'll be so critical. We'll see that next week. You'll become judgmental of others. Sometimes the things that we are so hard, we judge people so harshly about is because they're doing the very same thing that we do. And we can't see it. And we judge them harshly. Would you stand this morning? Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You may not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not one sin that sends anybody to hell, but the sin of unbelief. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, I've never done anything quite as bad as David did. I never killed anybody. You know, David, in one series of bad choices, he broke almost the last five of the, of the Ten Commandments. The man after God's own heart. And there's not a person in this room that can honestly say, I've kept all Ten Commandments let alone all 613, because it's not just Ten Commandments. It's the whole law. There's not one person that can say that. There's only one person who ever kept the law perfectly, and his name is Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven of every sin, not just one big one or three big ones or two little ones. There are no little sins, by the way. But God came to forgive us of our sins. If you've never... Come to the place where you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. I entreat you to call upon the name of the Lord today. And if you need grace and mercy, I invite you to meet me in the altar.
doesn't go to Jesus. That's the solution to all of your problems, is to arise and go to Jesus. I love you all. hope you have a wonderful week. As you see here, Preacher Larry, I didn't see him this morning, uh, but he, he set up this Christmas tree display here. I want to thank each one of you for contributing to the Samaritan's Purse here. We had, I guess, 50 boxes or more, and they'll be going to Mount Beulah. And, uh, and Larry and Della had requested that we pray over these before we uh, send these out. They're going to go all over the world, and maybe some child in a place that's never heard about Jesus Christ will get this box with toys and goodies, and they'll get a gospel tract, and, and they'll realize that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And so uh, we're going to pray over them as we, as we close here today. I hope you all have a blessed week. Wednesday night we'll be meeting not in here but up in the, uh, the old fellowship hall, the uh, Sunday school class, Preacher Larry's Sunday school class. We'll be meeting up there. And uh, thank God for that. We're still in the book of Hebrews. We're going to tackle one of the most difficult chapters, chapter 6, but I think God will help us to get through it. May you have a blessed week all week long. I'm going to ask Brother Mark, would you pray over these? Would y'all stretch forth your hand as we pray over these and dismiss us in prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we close our service today, Lord, we're grateful for so many things. First of all, for the opportunity to celebrate and be in your house, house of worship this morning, God. It's just a privilege and an honor to be here, Lord, and we're so thankful for that opportunity. God, we thank you for our pastor and the words that you gave him to share, that you laid on his heart, Lord message, apply it to our lives and go forward so that others can see Jesus in our lives, Lord, that's our prayer. And God, for the Samaritans first, we pray as each box goes forward, Lord, it'll change somebody's, it'll touch somebody's life, Lord, in a special way that we may not even ever know, Lord, but we thank you for those who have participated to, to give and to share, and God, we pray that hearts will be touched and lives will be changed. We thank you for the love of Jesus most of all and be with each of us, every home that's represented as we leave here and go forward to share the love of Jesus in our lives.